Hello and welcome everyone. We are grateful that so many of you have joined us for today's webinar, Job Quality in the Age of COVID-19, Strengthening Frontline Management and Supporting Workers. My name is Maureen Conway. I'm a Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Aspen Institute's Economic Opportunities Program. The Economic Opportunities Program works to advance strategies, policies, and ideas to help low and moderate income people thrive. Our work centers on improving economic opportunities for low income workers and for small businesses and aspiring entrepreneurs. In our work, we see that race, gender, and place play an outsized role in who is included in opportunity and who is shut out, in who has access to good jobs, who has access to the capital and credit needed to start a business, and who has the chance to build stable economic livelihood and pursue greater opportunities. Today, in the economic crisis that is accompanying the challenge of global pandemic, we see many of these workers and small businesses being among the hardest hit. And we bring that context into today's discussion. Uh, we're thrilled so many of you could join us for this conversation and we'd like to see where you're all um, calling in from. So we're going to launch our, our first poll uh, to just see uh, where everybody is zooming in from. So please uh, respond and, and let us know where you're joining us from. Okay, great. Well, let's, um, terrific. Well, thank you again all for joining us. It's great to see all of these uh, places represented. Um, uh, so today uh, we'll do a, a quick review of the logistics um, and uh, I'll go over using Zoom. We'll say a little bit about our, our job quality and practice series. And then I'm delighted that um, Dan Porterfield, President and CEO of the Aspen Institute, will be with us to share a few opening remarks. Uh, and then we'll hear uh, two presentations from our speakers and we'll have uh, time for your questions at the, at the end. Um, and just uh, quickly to re uh, review our Zoom uh, features, I'm sure many of you have become Zoom experts in recent weeks if your work has been like mine. Uh, but just to um, note a couple of things. First, um, you are all muted, but we encourage you to use the question feature, uh, the chat feature to send in questions throughout the webinar. So you can send us questions at any time um, and, uh, and we will try to take those questions at the end of our, at the end of our webinar. Um, we're recording this webinar and we'll be sharing the slides and the recording um, following this webinar. Um, and if you have any technical issues, uh, please send us an email at eop at aspeninstitute.org and we will do our best to help you resolve the issue. Um, great, and so now we wanna ask you uh, another poll question just to get a little engagement of who's, who else is on the line. Um, we'd love to know what kind of organization you work in. So we've given a number of choices here uh, and you can see if one of them fits for you. Uh, but let us know um, what kind of organization you, you work with. 
Um, great. Um, so I want to say a few more things, but uh, um, this is terrific. Wonderful to see uh, where everybody is um, is coming from for this webinar. So thank you so much for, for responding to this. Um, and I want to keep going, but I also want to ask uh, my colleagues, we seem to be having a little bit of a technical difficulty uh, reaching Dan Porterfield. So if my colleagues could reach out to him and um, bring him on, that would be great. Um, uh, I also want to note um, that uh, this, this webinar series is made possible with support from Prudential Financial. And we are extremely grateful to Prudential for their commitment to job quality and for their support for a range of work that we've been engaged in to help a wide variety of organizations bring a job quality lens to their work. Uh, this webinar is the fourth in our job quality uh, in practice webinar series. Uh, when we originally planned this webinar, our specific focus was on management of frontline workers and how improvements in the quality of supervision can lead to improvements in the quality of workers' jobs and their experience of, of employment, and also to improvements in the performance of the organization where that individual works. We'll still be talking about that. That's still our focus. That's still incredibly important uh, in today's context. And indeed, it might be even more important in our more challenging economic circumstances. Many businesses that we're now recognizing as essential businesses, uh, businesses such as food retailers and health facilities and, and others, they, um, they, they have workers that are working hard and they really can't afford to lose their workers now. So keeping their workers um, engaged and well-supported and motivated is going to be essential to the ability of those organizations um, to keep up with the, the new demands and with which they're faced. Um, at the same time, these stressful times also require more from frontline supervisors who will be confronted with more worker life challenges and maybe dealing with life challenges of their own. So we will keep that focus today of how do we support uh, frontline workers and, uh, and their supervisors and, and what are strategies to do that uh, in ways that improve the quality of jobs. But also the fact that today um, so many have suddenly lost their jobs cannot go unremarked. Uh, and we can see that uh, low-wage workers whose jobs many would not categorize as, as what we think of as good jobs, um, workers with uh, lower incomes, with few benefits, um, with uh, little certainty about their work, um, these workers have little resilience coming into this uh, economic crisis and they're ill-equipped to to weather it. So in future webinars, and you can see we have two more coming up in this series, but we'll also have many other conversations and discussions in different formats um, going forward. And, and we'll be focusing again on, on job quality, on the various dimensions of job quality, and in particular on the importance of, of building quality jobs as we uh, rebuild our economy coming out of this crisis um, and, and keep a fo focus on ensuring that all, all working people have access to good jobs. Um, and so now I am extremely hopeful that we have managed to connect um, uh, Dan Porterfield, who is president and CEO of the Aspen Institute, um, just a tremendous uh, supporter of the Economic Opportunities Program work and mission, um, and who I know has been eagerly working to, um, to join our conversation. I'm hoping that we have managed to 
bring him into our discussion because um, I would like to turn it over to Dan. So uh, have we brought Dan online? Uh, this is Dan. Maureen, can you hear me? Hey, there he is. Hooray. Thank you so much, Dan, for joining us. My pleasure. And I'm, I'm looking at a picture of myself on my laptop. So I'm, I'm hoping you see the picture, but not me, because I can't tell you if my face is square in the screen if I'm live. But Well, I'm, I can see you. You look great. All right. Well, thank <laughs> you. Well, you know, the, this is uh, such a timely panel and the work of the Economic Opportunities Program that Maureen leads um, has obviously never been more important. And I want to thank Maureen and her team, exceptional leaders, for their unbelievable dedication to uh, creating equity in the workplace, and to helping make sure that we can build our economies and our uh, government policies and our business practices in such a way that uh, people who work every day, get up and go to work every day, can earn a good living, have health care, have child care, take care of their children and their loved ones. Um, and I read a great uh, blog post that Maureen wrote uh, a couple of days ago where she reminded us that um, in 2008, when we had an enormous um, recession and tremendous amount of job loss, uh, we didn't learn every lesson. And a lot of our policies that we developed as a country, as a society, um, didn't ultimately strengthen the entry-level job or the work experience for millions and millions of Americans. And maybe this is an opportunity now to try to get it right and to uh, make it that much more likely that a person that gets up and goes to work in this country can have the dignity of an, of an all-around um, quality of economic life that supports their aspirations and gives them the feeling that they're in a just economy. That's saying a lot, but that's what Maureen and the Asp Institute have been working on for years. Um, really what we're all about here is trying to drive change towards a more free, just, and equitable society and a more free, just, and equitable world. And that takes um, commitment and Maureen and her team are 100% committed. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. Uh, and Maureen, thank you for persisting to bring this panel together so that we could all reflect and learn and act together to build that society that we envision. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you, Dan. We really appreciate you joining us today. I know how busy you are and how much is on your plate now. So it's uh, really tremendous to have you join us. Appreciate that. Um, so, and now we uh, really get to launch into the, to the conversation today. Uh, we're so fortunate to have um, experts from two different organizations that are working on the front line, supporting frontline workers. They have uh, significant expertise in developing strategies to engage frontline management as well as frontline workers as part of job stabilization and job quality improvement strategies. Um, so we'll hear from them about what they've learned about strategies to strengthen supervision as part of a strategy for supporting frontline workers and what new challenges they're seeing now and, and how, they're, how they're responding. Um, our speakers will offer an overview of their strategies, some examples of accomplishments and lessons learned, um, and just how they're adapting to the new and urgent needs we, we face today. Uh, so I'll introduce them. They'll each present for about 15 minutes and, and then we'll 
be able to, to take your questions. So um, first we're going to hear from uh, Emily Dieffa, uh, Workforce Innovations Consultant with PHI. Um, PHI has long experience and strategies to support workers in home health and long-term care settings and has for really for decades. Uh, I've worked with PHI for a very long time and they have just been tremendous leaders in, uh, in designing strategies that promote quality jobs while also promoting quality care for the people who rely on those workers. So um, Emily, thank you so much for joining us and I am going to turn it over to you now. Great, thank you so much Maureen. Hello, everybody. Um, just to echo Dan, I am feeling incredibly grateful in this moment to have the opportunity to share this time with you. Um, like Maureen said, I think we're all becoming experts in Zoom, whether we want to or not. <laughs> so uh, thank you again for choosing to share your time with me today. Um, if we want to go ahead to the next slide. Beautiful. So as I was developing this slide, I quickly realized that it would be nearly impossible for me to accurately capture the rapid rate at which COVID-19 is spreading throughout our communities. Hence, you see a question mark right here. And this number is already woefully out of date. And as this pandemic is continuing to really push and in many times absolutely break the limits of our healthcare system, we have 4.5 million direct care workers who are on the front lines providing supports and services to some of the most vulnerable people among us, namely older adults and people living with disabilities. Now, when I say direct care workers, I'm speaking specifically about personal care aides, home health aides, and nursing assistants. And these folks can work in a variety of settings. So some of them are working in nursing homes and assisted livings, and many of them are providing care directly in people's homes in the community. Now, this workforce is predominantly women, predominantly women of color, and a third are immigrants. And so while they're facing this increased risk of infection due to the very nature of their work, they are also grappling with the very real challenges that are associated with low wage work. So having access to healthcare coverage, having access to paid time off or sick leave, having proper training. Some states don't require any training for personal care aides. And we're also hearing reports of issues finding childcare and accessing the personal protective equipment that they need. Next slide. So as this crisis deepens and as our dependence on this workforce becomes, quite frankly, more desperate, um, people are starting to take notice. So we are seeing headlines in the New York Times, in USA Today, in Washington Post about the impossible choices direct care workers are making every day to stay afloat and to keep themselves healthy. I read one article where a home health aide was talking about the fact that she was considering spraying herself down with Lysol in between her appointments with clients because she was afraid that she herself was going to be the very reason that one of her clients became ill. Go ahead with the next slide. But despite all of these challenges, workers are still showing up. They're still showing up because they realize people's lives depend on it. 
And quite frankly, they don't have the financial safety net to sit this one out. That isn't a choice. And so that means that they're juggling a lot. They're juggling the fear. They're juggling the anxiety of keeping themselves healthy as they take the subway, as they take the bus, as they provide direct hands-on care. I mean, social distancing literally isn't an option here. And they're doing all of this without the equipment that they need. So 70% of providers reported to the Home Care Association of New York State that they do not have the personal protective equipment they need for their staff. So that means that the fear that direct care workers are sitting with, yes, it's about themselves, it's about staying healthy, but it's that fear of, am I going to expose my loved ones to COVID-19 or am I going to expose the people I care for? And as I mentioned before, they're struggling to figure out childcare arrangements. Usually childcare starts at 8 a.m. Well, now for whatever reason, it starts at 11 a.m. Like, what does that do to your work schedule? And they're also dealing with caring for and supporting their own older family members to keep them at home and to keep them safe. Now, at the same time, we're having conversations with employers who are looking at a work schedule that literally looks like a piece of Swiss cheese. So as workers availability and as their scheduling changes, supervisors are having to work super closely with staff to make sure that they are filling the shifts that they need to fill in order to ensure continuity of care. And they're also in this mad scramble to create policies and procedures that help to mitigate the risk of infection. But the thing is, is that you can create all of the policies and procedures you want, but if you don't have open lines of communication, of clear communication between supervisors and workers, those policies aren't going to be implemented with fidelity. And so all of this, this all calls for a massive amount of collaboration and partnership, which is not possible if workers and supervisors don't have a relationship if they don't have trust. And so PHI works very closely with long-term care employers to create this kind of relationship-centered supervision. Now, this is the part in the presentation where if we were all in a room together, I would ask, how many of you have ever left a job because of a supervisor? And typically when I ask this question, like everybody's hand goes up. And that's because we know that quality supervision plays such an important role in whether or not we feel we have a quality job. And because of that, because of the relationship between supervision and job quality, PHI developed the PHI coaching approach. You wanna go ahead to the next slide? So the coaching approach is a two-day seminar that has been designed specifically for supervisors in long-term care settings to shift communication norms. So supervisors are managing from a place of relationship and where they're empowering and supporting their employees to develop their own interpersonal and problem solving skills. Go ahead, next slide. So over the two days, we use adult learner-centered teaching principles to build competencies around three primary communication skills. So the first is active listening. So we explore how our body language is telling its own powerful story. And we, um, and we talk about how we can gain greater understanding from another person 
by paraphrasing what we hear them say and asking big, open, curious questions. We also discuss self-management and self-reflection. So we talk about the importance of understanding and recognizing our own emotional triggers, because as we build that self-awareness, when we are in a moment of being triggered, we have more control and more choice over how we react in that situation. And we also consider personal styles. We talk about preconceptions, assumptions, and judgments, the judgments that we can so easily make when we are working on creating relationships with people who are different than us. Essentially, we look at all of that noise that can get in the way of staying objective, of staying fair, and seeing another person's perspective. And lastly, we talk about clear non-judgmental communication. So we present strategies for supervisors for presenting a problem in a way that is clear and direct, that avoids blame or judgment, and that expresses belief in the person. And I think um, when I do this two-day seminar, I, uh, I get self-conscious on how many times I use the word belief. And I think that's because it's really at the heart of this intervention. It's this idea that I, as a supervisor, believe in you. I believe that you can do this job. And because of that, I'm going to support you and hold you accountable to that job. Go ahead, next slide. Now, traditionally, a lot of supervisors in long-term care have learned a much more traditional approach to supervision that leans very heavily into the accountability side and less so into support. And so it's more about describing the rules and the consequences of breaking those rules. And then I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna mandate to you what the solution is here. And the thing is, is that this approach very rarely takes into account the challenges and the complexities faced by direct care workers coming from marginalized communities who are dealing with the challenges associated with low wage work. Next slide. Now, when you look at coaching supervision, you'll see that we're still raising performance concerns. That part is the same. But here, coaching supervisors are able to lean into their relationships and really leverage those communication skills to gather more information from the employee's perspective and pull back from that place of assumption and judgment so that they're able to collaboratively problem solve so that the worker is identifying the solution that works best for them. And then the supervisor is supporting them in taking action steps to follow through on that solution. Now, when this is implemented, when coaching supervision is implemented, it's shown to reduce worker turnover, increase satisfaction, and it gives supervisors more time. So we're talking about being in a place of crisis. And, and now, I think more than ever, supervisors are stretched thin. And with this, we see that supervisors are spending less time on discipline. They're spending less time on job performance, and it frees them to really um, focus on creating relationships and delivering the best possible quality care. Now, because we know that quality supervision is so closely tied to quality jobs, uh, the PHI coaching supervision is a key tenant of our employment and training models, and it's something that we're talking about very frequently with employers. And so whenever we're beginning a new relationship with an employer, there are a number of best practices that guide our work. You could go to the next slide. Beautiful. So the first is that we model the very coaching skills we teach. So we create trusting relationships 
by actively listening and learning about an employer's most pressing challenges and how those challenges are affecting their strategic business initiatives. So we break down our core communication skills and then we invite employers to share with us how they see those skills impacting their culture and their operations. So in this way, we're not telling employers what they need to do, but we're inviting them to imagine the change that they wanna see. And by doing that, it enables us to create interventions that speak directly to their need. And it gives us the opportunity to refine our employment and training models so that we are creating quality jobs for direct care workers. So a quick example of this is that we're having conversations with long-term care employers who are really grappling with how to stay competitive and viable with this new value-based payment system. And without getting into the whole mucky muck of what that means, um, they are experimenting with modernizing technology. They are looking at how do they redesign workflows. But the thing is, is that when you really drill down, no amount of modernization or redesign really matters if people aren't communicating with one another. They're not working well together. So secondly, we underscore our business case. So long-term care employers are faced with a huge workforce shortage. Huge. And this shortage, it is not going anywhere anytime soon. Direct care is the fastest growing occupation in the United States. And employers are going to need to fill 8.2 million vacancies over the next 10 years. So with the cost of turnover estimated at $2,200 a person, employers have a significant financial incentive to invest in stabilizing and supporting their workforce. And lastly, we include direct care workers in the intervention. So in addition to developing PHI coaching supervision, we've also developed the PHI coaching approach to communication, which is a one day seminar designed specifically for direct care workers so that they are also developing a comparable set of competencies around communication, collaboration, and problem solving. And this allows supervisors and workers to use the same language to use the same lens, and it goes a long way in helping to support this kind of culture change. Next slide. So what does this look like in the wild? Um, PHI has done a ton of work with an organization called VNSNY Partners in Care. Now, Partners in Care is a licensed home health agency that operates in New York City. And their executive level leadership realized that the organization's rapid growth, so they started with 62 home health aides, and today they have over 11,000. And at one point, as they were sort of rapidly growing, they realized that they had outpaced their capacity to really support their frontline staff. And the thing is, is that, you know, they were spending a ton of time on discipline, and they were seeing that their retention was low. So they weren't retaining people. And they had more plans for growth. So they intended to grow their private pay business. So it seemed like the right time to really focus on creating a culture that rewarded home health aides for being skilled professionals and more clearly communicated how the organization appreciated them. And in the end, Partners in Care trained 280 supervisors in coaching supervision and 8,500 home health aides in the coaching approach to communication, which is crazy. It's so many people. Um, if you could go to the next slide. 
Great. So how did they do that? <laughs> um, there were a couple of important um, strategies that they used that I just want to quickly highlight. So the first is that their most vocal champion, the person that was like running around the office with a cape that said coaching supervision on it. I mean, I don't know if she actually did that, but I like to think that she did. Uh, was their CEO. So their biggest champion was their CEO. And I think having buy-in, starting from the very top, really put Partners in Care in a place where they could create this kind of culture change in such a large organization. Secondly, they created a cross-functional team to design, implement, and sustain a coaching culture. So this team was diverse. They had frontline workers. They had board members on this committee. And the thing with this committee is it stayed together. Yes, they did a lot in terms of designing and implementing the coaching approach from the beginning, but they met for years. They met for years on how to sustain this, on how to incentivize and how to support supervisors in continuing to use the coaching approach, which really helped to hardwire this into their culture. And lastly, they were very strategic about the ways in which they rolled this out. So they asked themselves, what are the most important relationships for home health aides? And it was like, well, it's their relationship with the RN educators and with the case managers. So where do you think they started? They started by focusing on developing strong relationships between home health aides RN educators and case managers. Now surveys showed improved job satisfaction across the board for home health aides and supervisors. And home health aides felt strongly that supervisors were treating them fairly. And that over 80% said that they recommended partners in care as a good place to work. So as PHI continues its work with employers, we are being very mindful about the ways in which we are aligning these interventions with key outcomes so that we can clearly show a return on investment um, because we know that is such an important performance measure when it comes to making the case for sustainability and securing future funding. So in conclusion, um, thank you again so much for your time. I encourage you um, to check out your website if you're, if you're able to. Um, PHI is going to be doing a ton of work, um, better understanding the experiences of workers and employers in this moment, and we will be sharing articles over the next couple of weeks. And we also have a GoFundMe to support personal care aides in New York City who are working to raise money to gain access to the personal protective equipment that they need. So thank you again. Maureen, back to you. Great. Thank you so much, Emily. That was terrific. Um, next, we will hear from Liddy Romero, Managing Director, Work Lab Innovations and founder of Worklife Partnership in Denver, Colorado. And Liddy is joined by her colleague, Katie Lynn Beckeray, Customer Success Manager at Worklife Partnership. Um, Worklife Partnership advances the sustainable workforce model with client companies. Uh, and they work across a range of industries, including healthcare, but also retail and customer service. Um, and they have substantial experience working with their business clients to address a range of life issues that frontline workers face and encouraging companies to invest in frontline worker stability and success. So, uh, Libby, I turn it over to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yep. Thanks, everyone. Um, Katie and I will just hop on video and then take ourselves off. All right. So next slide. 
Um, and next slide, thank you. So WorkLife provides a cost-based, oh, sorry, previous slide, there we go. Um, provides a cost-based service uh, called the Resource Navigator directly to employers. Our Resource Navigators work one-on-one, -on -one, <clears throat> excuse me, with struggling frontline employees to help them get access to community government and internal employer resources. We help with things like childcare, transportation, financial health, and housing for those frontline workers. We scaled our services across the country in 2017 and have 10 partners in our network. That is the WorkLab network uh, that is connected to WorkLife Partnership, um, providing these services in their communities across the country. We have more than 90 employers buying our services, ranging from healthcare, long-term care, manufacturing, customer service sectors. Our employers range from anywhere from 100 employees to 40,000, and I just think these um, facts are important to kind of lay the foundation for what we'll talk about in just a little bit. We are a nonprofit service that normally gets integrated into an employee's benefits package. Thus, we do business a lot with human resources who um, have very, very little bandwidth right now, obviously because of COVID-19. Um, and they are the ones that put us in their budget. Our services really focus on the percentage of frontline workers across the country, helping them to stabilize by this resource navigator so that they can mobilize. Katie's role, which we'll talk about in a little bit, is to account manage, um, mostly our Colorado-based employers. And as we grow across the country, she also account manages our shared national employers in our network. Um, I think I'm, I'm most proud to say that all the practices we have put into place, uh, which we'll get to in a little bit, um, have resulted in not yet an employer dropping out for their membership. We have seen definitely an uptake uh, in our services being needed, both by people who are being laid off, but also people who remain employed in these sectors and within our employers. So I think truthfully, we do expect some employers to drop our contract. I think there is a, um, obviously with the economy, and we truly believe that the work that we've done to engage employers and engage frontline managers specifically is keeping this connection alive between us and these employer members that we have. So next slide. Here's just a little um, <clears throat> graphic on how our navigators work with frontline employee with frontline employees and um, just sort of the th some of the things that we work with and that we specialize in. And you will have this presentation, I believe. So next slide. So I think, you know, part of this is what have we done in training and what this presentation and what we have for you today is all around how the communication and specifically our employer partnership cycle, which you see on this, on this graphic, is our training. And we'll go through components of how we communicate with employers in order to better engage um, the HR, but also frontline managers. So, so work life, um, I've, I started this 11 years ago. And like I said, we've spread to 10 communities across the country. And not until three years ago or two years ago, I would say, did we make the shift to focus on account management and what, what is the value that we provide uh, each employer. So we definitely have this dual customer in the frontline employee and the employer that pays for our services. We have done training before for frontline managers, although we suspended it two years ago, uh, because it did not fit our fee-for-service model. 
again, we are a cost-based service and employers just weren't willing, at least uh, at that point, to pay or invest or give the time <laughs> to pay for frontline management training. So we had to work with that challenge. And I think we've, in the past two years since we've had Katie, have done pretty good on that. Um, thus, we begin to build a more robust communication cycle, which you see here. And uh, the employer, again, the employer partnership cycle is, that, is a key element to how we engage frontline managers. Um, Katie, I don't know if you want to speak a little bit to this. Um, absolutely. So I, I can definitely emphasize that we do have the, the dual role of ensuring that we prioritize those frontline workers, but also ensuring that the employer feels that they have a partner in us um, and not only helping them better understand the needs of their workforce, but also in ensuring that when situations, crises like these do arise, that they feel that they have experts in the field that they can turn to, to really be their navigators for helping their workforce and determining what those key resources are going to be. Um, I think a big part of that is that this robust employer engagement cycle does enable us to have this training and learning ground for our employer stakeholders um, that makes it one-on-one, -on -one, that makes the interactions with them tangible, and that can really facilitate some educational conversations, some insightful conversations where we're able to provide them with information, provide them with data that speaks directly to the importance of engaging their workforce. And as Lydia mentioned, taking that next step and engaging their managers, supervisors, their leaders to ensure that there is this common understanding and awareness of what we do. Um, obviously, right now, given, given the current crisis, we are balancing that fine line between actively being there and reaching out and ensuring they know we are a partner for them, while also recognizing that there are times that HR teams need that space to really um, identify what the needs are currently for their team members and then come back to us at a later time when they are able to kind of wrap their heads around where we can best step in and be providing that support. Yep, so I just want to underline that while uh, these are practices that we have incorporated into our business and how we work with employers, um, obviously COVID, we've had to step away from trying to engage with them on this um, frequent basis and really respond to what they need, meaning HR, business, and those frontline managers. So next slide. So what we'll have today is, <clears throat> excuse me, Katie is our customer success manager. We'll go through the three ways in which we've helped build that manager support for frontline workers. So I'll let Katie take the next slides. Wonderful, thank you so much, Liddy. Um, so we've broken down the next section into uh, three separate employer practices that we believe have been integral to the success that we've seen with our current employer members, and especially integral to our ability to conti continue serving in a heightened capacity given the, the current COVID crisis. Um, so I'll review each of these and give you some examples of how that plays out in, in our real life day-to-day -day interactions with our employer members. Um, next slide, please. Oh, sorry, go back slide. You were ahead of me, so even better. Um, so one of the key ways that we engage our employer members is through our data, whether that's both qualitative or quantitative. Um, it is certainly one of the most important ways that we are held accountable to our employer partners, that we are providing the services that they are expecting that we're providing and also showing the impact that we have in being able to connect individuals to those resources to promote that stability. 
So in terms of how we present the data, um, we do, as part of the employer engagement cycle, engage our employers on a quarterly basis, um, providing them with information about how many individuals we served that quarter, what were the services we provided. Um, one of the most informative um, pieces of data that we provide revolves around what the barriers were that these individuals were reporting to really help employers feel that they have a pulse on their workforce and to facilitate conversations around, you know, what are my frontline workers experiencing day in and day out? What are the navigators seeing? And what are the steps that we've been able to take to really promote that stability, promote that wellness, promote less stress? All of those, what you can say are more or less um, intangibles. Um, I think initially uh, we really focused on ROI, but realized that unless employers were giving us, you know, all this data and information about their workforce with, um, you know, who was terminated, who left, um, we really couldn't grasp a real ROI unless, unless we had that from them. And so because of that, we really had to shift to more of those intangibles and ensure that the reporting, the conversations around the reporting that we were having with them focused on those and really help develop this awareness that this investment in their workforce and this investment in their employees' well-being was ultimately the best investment that they could make. Um, next slide, please. So with that, we also learned that engaging managers and supervisors was one of the most important things that we could do to ensure the success of our partnership. I think we realized at the onset that a lot of those initial conversations we were having with employer members when we were at the beginning stages of our partnership with them were more centered around, you know, with or more grounded in conversations with CEOs, with some of those owners who, although they cared significantly for their workforce, weren't necessarily the ones who were having those day-to-day -day interactions or really understanding what those needs were, how we would implement our program seamlessly into the benefits that they already offered. Um, so in realizing that that implementation was a bit lacking when we weren't engaging that leadership manager supervisor level right off the bat, we pivoted within the last, I would say about a year and a half to really understand and better target managers and supervisors through diligent effort in including them in nurture campaigns, um, ensuring that they were engaged in the launch process if it was a new employer. So making sure that we had that buy-in right off the bat um, that buy-in also required that we changed and refined the language that we were using to bring them into that conversation with us. I think managers and supervisors, obviously, when they are the ones um, the frontline workers are going to, to share their challenges in life day to day, um, it's often a huge time ask of managers and supervisors and they have their other roles and responsibilities within the business that they have to achieve as well. And so we recognize that bringing us in, um, we had to be seen as, as a partner for them. We had to be able to frame our services, we had to be able to speak to what we were doing in a way that um, helped them focus on the intangibles, help them see how partnering with us save them time, how it could shift the productivity and the positivity among their workforce. Um, as a third step, so next slide please. Um, we always wanted to make sure that as we're engaging employer members in, in our relationship partnership uh, cycle, that we are actively looking for opportunities to help them be an employer of choice. So we actively help them identify with the data, with the information, the resources that we have in providing recommendations and advice for how they can best develop new programs or bring on new benefits or help them 
understand how they can stretch their bandwidth a bit more to be that employer of choice, to help provide them with information on what the culture of their company is, how that, that can maybe be strengthened um, in the moment, and help provide them with insights that they otherwise wouldn't have because they aren't able to have those day-to-day -day interactions with their, with their employees and with their workforce needs. So it really is has been a shift in ensuring that not only is HR informed of what it is that we're doing, but those managers and supervisors as well. Um, and acting in that consultative role, um, while also understanding that you know, we want to be emphasizing what we share, what the value is that we bring in that moment, um, so that they know that they can be reaching out to us, but also exploring as a business ourselves, where we can make that consultative piece um, something that they value even more and that we can turn into monetary revenue as well. Um, Lydia, I'd love to bring it back to you um, in terms of what we are currently doing here in the moment of the COVID crisis, sure. utilizing those employer engagement strategies. Sure, next slide. Thank you. So I think it's important to know that um, we've been building this process in the employer engagement cycle for um, a couple of years and have tuned it to, I think, every employee, every employer that we have. So it is it is customized, although the data that we provide on a quarterly basis and that we use to review with them is, is a template and uh, is very simple, actually. It shows things like, you know, to what extent some uh, a group of people might be experiencing um, housing issues to what extent people are experiencing food insecurity. And for the first time, it's a look into in a workforce, their workforce that they have never been able to see before or get to. And those moments that Katie spends with employers on a quarterly basis reviewing that data is the training, is, is the aha moments that happen for managers and HR people. Um, we are, we, I think one of our measures of success is that we get a lot of referrals from HR and managers. About 40% right now of referrals are coming from HR and managers, and then the rest are self-referred. So people um, across the workforce, across the employer um, workforce, know who we are, what we do, and are making those referrals for employees who are struggling. Um, I think employers right now, especially um, during the last two to three weeks, um, are extremely thankful for the communication um, process that we have and definitely value the cycle and our, we call it data storytelling that we've put in place. It's one of our values. We bring the qualitative and quantitative data. Um, you know, we're not, we're, we're not uh, being aggressive in how we approach them, but they are calling and emailing us. Um, and we are supporting people who have been laid off or who furloughed uh, as well. And they are very thankful for that. And we are tracking that as well. So we let them know. They do feel like they have support. Um, and I think a couple of things that Katie wanted to add, Katie, if you wanted the managers. Definitely. So I've had the um, and to engage the managers, especially during during this time, we've asked that we be allowed and provided the contact information for managers across our employer members so that we can communicate with them directly with any of those client resources, with updates about how we can be facilitating those connections to those resources, um, just when there is this overwhelming sense of being unable to understand where the resources are at, really being able to provide that sense of hope. 
Um, many of our employer members have come back to us and even if it's not in that immediate moment that we're able to provide an answer, um, they have just expressed their gratitude that they know that they have a partner in us who is working diligently behind the scenes to ensure that they have any and all information at their fingertips so that they know that when they feel that they can't be there to fully support their workforce, whether they're furloughed, laid off, um, impacted with this crisis, that we we are there to really step in and fill, fill that role for them. Um, it's been really an inspiration to hear them say that you know we can we can serve as that source of hope and we can serve as that um, light that they don't have to do it all on their own um, and consequently that you know helps us strengthen our partnership with them um, strengthen the business business relationship and ultimately we've seen and will see i have no doubt um, ambassadors will come out of this who really see the value of our service our ability to provide that one-on-one -on -one support um, and just to speak to what Liddy said, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen four times the amount of clients we would typically see. Um, and so we are clearly being able to fill that niche, clearly being able to fill that role. And um, it only helps us to strengthen those partnerships with our employers moving forward. Thank you. Um, just closing note, Maureen, then I'll pass it on, is um, we've been very intentional on attracting employers and acquiring employer members who have the right mindset. and. I am sure hopefully they will um, develop sort of this tribe that uh, of employers who really want to do good by their frontline workers to see us through this. So with that, Maureen, I'll send it back to you. Great, thank you so much. And uh, that, was, that was really terrific. We have a bunch of questions that came in. And for those of you who've been thinking, I encourage you to, to go ahead and put some questions in. But let me just um, start uh, with, um, uh, so a number of people were curious about how employers are uh, utilizing the navigator in the midst of um, COVID-19. Have your requests gone up or are there certain types of services that people are asking for more of now? Um, yeah. Um, so for us, Katie, you probably know a little bit more details. Um, I definitely, we have a lot of healthcare um, providers across the country and those are our larger employers. And I think, especially in Colorado, which is the data most immediate that we've had, is uh, childcare. Childcare has come up over and over again, and we are connecting them to our local funders, but also some um, programs that the governor has started with helping those healthcare providers get access to safe and uh, quality childcare. Katie, I don't know if you have more to add. Definitely. Um, childcare is definitely the most, I think, prevalent over the last couple of weeks, but I know that as layoffs and furloughs are becoming more and more frequent, we've seen quite a few um, employees reaching out to us who are concerned with obviously financial stability long term, what that's going to look like, um, how they can be tapping into other community resources to be offsetting some of those bills that are going to be a challenge for them in the upcoming weeks. Um, I also know that our navigators have said that stress management has been huge. Um, we've been tapping into a lot of EAPs to ensure that employees have the resources they need to be getting that professional counseling um, to be able to manage the stress, whether it's within their workplace, whether it is managing their home life, um, whether they have a family member or they themselves have been impacted or um, have the virus, what, whatever that situation may be, we've definitely seen an uptick in requests for that help um help as well yeah great um emily a question for you was um how do you incorporate uh cultural differences uh race and ethnicity uh into your training i love that question thank you um 
So to go back to those core communication skills that we work to develop, one that I mentioned was the importance of building self-awareness and self-management. And so within that set of modules, we really explore the ways in which you know, socioeconomic status and, and quite honestly privilege can impact a person's ability to show up on the job. And by using adult learner-centered teaching principles and by introducing worker scenarios that sort of highlight and expose some of these very common and real challenges that workers can face, we are challenging supervisors to explore and understand what that means for a particular worker, even though these circumstances are completely outside of their control. And we also ask them to, um, to explore and examine for themselves their point of influence and how in that moment, their choice on whether or not they approach that situation through a coaching lens, through a supportive lens, or through one that is more of a traditional supervisor can greatly impact the ability of that worker to stay on the job. Um, and I think there's a lot of interesting conversations that come out of our trainings, but specifically I think of um, one time we were in a coaching supervision training and one of the supervisors was from Africa. And she shared with us about how just in her culture, it's, um, she doesn't, she's not comfortable making eye contact because that isn't a cultural norm for her. And what she's had to do to sort of navigate that in a Western society where people react to her like you're being rude or you're not listening to me. And so just like this moment of collective awareness where you see some of the skills and some of what we're talking about sort of actualized by the participants can be really powerful. Yeah, great. Um, Thank you. Um, this question is for uh, work-life partnership, although you both might have some thoughts on this. Um, uh, sort of what kinds of things have you learned about why employers do or don't value investing in training for their supervisors or managers? And sort of relatedly, a question is, is, is retention primarily the goal that, that is that what engages most companies or, or is there more? Um, I would go back to my comment about, I don't know if it's a they don't want to, but I do know there is a certain bandwidth that we all have. Um, and being an employer myself, you know, starting with one employee and going up to just right now 30, but still, I understand that. And I think it's a issue of the bandwidth of resources, of time, um, the people that we have to work with and through our human resource groups and across all sectors. And there are varying challenges across all of them. And many departments, HR departments, aren't well equipped with uh, considering their, how, how big they are, the quantity of employees they have. So um, we are, I think we're just, we're gentle and we're nice about that. And we understand that they have capacity issues. Now that's HR, right? Um, and managers who are always thrown sort of every initiative that CEOs want to start. And uh, we have to be partners in that and with that. And I think retention, while um, well, Katie talked about return on investment, and, you know, when I started this 11 years ago, we were touting the return on investment and then figured out we can't really do it if employers, employers don't give us the data we need uh, on a consistent basis. So what we have turned to is, while retention um, pre-COVID was obviously a huge issue, what I was trying to get at when I talked about the mindset of employees, employers that we want to recruit 
is that most employers that we recruit now and who are still remain part of our membership do it because it fits their values and culture. And that is the, you know, the quote I said, prosperity for the planet. I truly believe there are employers out there who are willing to invest to that end. Retention becomes um, something secondary um, and not a priority because they know as long as they create a culture uh, and they value, you know, they have their values as, as forefront of their business proposition, then they will retain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Maureen, just to add to that, I think um, I appreciate, Liddy, the fact that you raised this question around capacity because that's definitely something that we have to keep in mind when we're working with employers, particularly who are, are smaller employers. And uh, to go back to the workforce crisis that I mentioned, a lot of times people are just running on fumes because they're short-staffed, they're trying to figure out how to fill those shifts, supervisors are covering duties that they don't typically cover. And so when you come in and you're like, we're going to transform the culture, they're like, I'm just trying to get through the day. Um, so to be very sensitive to that, but and to also sort of when we're thinking about the design and implementation and sustainability to make it um, as much as possible, not something that's additive, but that is something that is incorporated into existing practices and structures so that it doesn't feel like one more thing, but it's, it feels more like doing the same things differently. Yeah. So that's great. And Emily, I'm going to stick with you for a minute because there's an interesting question that came up. And I think it relates to, you know, you sort of talked about how you tried to move employers away from sort of this sanctioning way of, mm. of dealing with their, with their workers. Um, and, and one person writes that they see in the news today, healthcare workers are having their jobs threatened if they talk about increased risks and supply shortages. You mentioned the issue with people having access to PPE. Um, how do you re recommend sort of employers deal with, you know, how do they uh, deal with what their workers might say publicly? Are you mm. talking to supervisors and employers about that issue? Yeah, so I think, um, I think that's a, a very real challenge because to me it comes down to a question of control and what you have control over and um, supervisors and employers have control over the ways in which they work with and collaborate and support their frontline workers. And so I think in this moment um, from the conversations that I've had with employers What's really worked for them is to be as open and transparent as they can be with what they are trying to do. And, you know, whether that be totally reinventing the work schedule, um, whether that be creating new um, communication methods and also like whole new schedules to get people safely into the office to get the personal protective equipment that they need. It's really just focusing on how do you support the workers? How do you keep them safe? And how do you keep the people that they're caring for safe? And, and I think that this is one of those dangerous questions where there's no like magic answer. Like I, I don't have like a magic, who knows? But um, to me, I feel like what I've seen working and what I've seen employers doing is just really focusing on what they can control around quality and safety um, and doing the best that they can to make sure workers have what they need to do their jobs. Great, thank you. Um, so, uh, Liddy, a question for you. You mentioned um, being intentional about attracting employers with the right mindset. And what would you say are sort of the key factors of the, the mindset that you're looking for? Oh, um, 
So uh, one of our bullet points was consultative, right? Obviously, we can, we do understand when employers, I think pre-COVID, were uh, trying to get a band-aid for um, keeping and retaining employees. Um, in our kind of process, in our business development process, it truly is that it is a discovery process in which we're asking questions, they're interviewing us, and we're trying to figure out whether we're a good match for each other. Um, and some of those criteria, right, is let's talk about your values. How does this match your values? Let's talk about who is engaged in having and in including this program into your benefits, because if it's just one person, that's not going to cut it and it's not going to make us successful. So we have to have sort of this whole, you know, down the line of are we getting CEOs, HR managers and frontline managers engaged in all of this. And it's very clear very quickly that um, when it's not. And when it's sort of just a band-aid for, you know, for cherry picking employees. Um, I think now what this really means is um, while we have employers who are laying off and we, they're being very transparent with Katie and Katie, um, I don't know if you have more to add, but they're being transparent and they're saying, you know, we either have to lay off or we're furloughing or we're job attached layoffs. And we really hope to have these people back in six months. Can you help us keep them um, stable so that they're ready to come back on. Definitely, I would say that. And I, I would say with the mindset as well, just in my experience working with employers, um, as I make mention, it, it really is about sometimes those intangibles. Um, you know an employer who is truly invested in their employees on a holistic, whole person level versus just interested in the outcomes for the business. Um, I think when there is not, I mean, obviously the shared values there, um, but also just that understanding that their people are ultimately what is the success of the, the company and the business and really understanding they have to make that investment to have that high level um, is, is crucial. Um, and ensuring that it's not just one person who's bought into that message, but really the team that can see that value and is willing to partner with us, not have us come in to be the sole solution. Yeah. So I realize we're over time, but I'm going to ask you one more question. Um, and so you can give up maybe a quick answer and uh, maybe a final thought as, as we wrap up. Um, so there was a question about, um, uh, you know, how you financed this work in the beginning. And I thought that that was interesting. If you think back to the poll, a lot of people are, who were on this call are in, you know, workforce development or things like that. And you all have been describing sort of this work in a very sort of relationship building way rather than as a sort of transactional service delivery kind of thing. So I'm just curious, sort of, particularly in the beginning as you were starting, if you could think about sort of what were some of the challenges for, for funding the work? And if you have a a key lesson learned, um, and just in general, if you have a sort of final thought for somebody who might want to be thinking about how to um, move into this kind of work. Uh, so Liddy, why don't I just start? I, I see Liddy, Katie, Emily in my screen, so why don't we just go in that, in that order? Sure. I'm going to take my camera off because my internet is um, a little bit unstable. So um, let's see if I still, can you still hear me? The financing, I think, okay, so challenges in the beginning, um, 11 years ago, <laughs> retention was not an issue. We were on the heels of a recession. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty experienced with that at this point. Um, and I think that um, what funders were giving me was why aren't employers paying for this? Uh, we don't want to do business with, you know, within an employer, basically, that's for them to fund. 
that was a huge challenge for a good eight years. And it wasn't until um, national funders actually said, oh, this is different. This is, this is maybe how you do sustainable funding. You get employers to buy in. Did it really take, take hold locally? So for many, many years, I got that response from foundations. Um, I actually started this after um, on Obama's American Recovery Act Fund. It was $80,000 that, that started sort of my position and uh, grew it to a nonprofit. So it's, you know, I think um, the transition from free to that was government sponsored to a paid service is something that I would never do again. I would start with some sort of payment from an employer right off the bat. And these are all lessons learned. Um, and I think moving forward as we, as we go through sort of the aftermath or going through um, what COVID is creating for us here, um, we will go to our employers and um, we don't want them to drop us completely because we have rem we've remained a social organization because we do have this dual customer and we want to be able to serve employees who are very unstable. Um, so we will negotiate or we will talk with all our employers about continuing to serve those who most need our services and uh, we'll come to some sort of agreement, but that's, that's part of our social mission. Great. Um, Katie, did you want to add anything quickly to that? Um, I think just briefly, a, a big step that we've taken in the last couple of years is, you know, reframing as employers have come back and, you know, shared, you know, why, why has my membership price gone up or why am I having to pay more? Um, helping them understand and see the value in a different way um, and helping them really buy into this sense that, you know, the the fee that may be associated with your membership um, by no means is something that we don't absolutely intend to show 100% return on investment based on those things like culture, based on those things like increased productivity, becoming that valued member within your workforce. Um, so helping just shift the mindset so that they see that um, that monetary amount has so many outcomes that far outweigh the cost of what they're, they're paying us to really care people. Great. And Emily? So I had mentioned that coaching supervision is an important part of our employment and training models. So it's not necessarily, we don't view it as a model in and of itself, but as an important part of the entry-level training model we're creating or the advanced role model that we're creating. And so in order for employers, I think, to really buy into this idea of model development and um, implementation, this really goes back to sort of our need to work with employers on understanding what are their key clinical outcomes that they are interested in improving or changing so that we can be very strategic in the way that we are creating models and initiatives that speak to their business interests while still at the same time creating quality jobs for direct care workers. And so it's just being very mindful, I think, of striking that balance and of being um, very open and honest with employers about where they are, where they wanna be, and sort of how we can work together in getting there. Great. Well, thank you all so much. This was a, a great conversation. I'm, I'm sorry that we weren't able to get to everybody's questions. We had uh, lots of questions. Um, 
But thank you. Uh, thanks to our terrific presenters. Um, thanks to uh, all of you for sticking with us. This webinar was, uh, is, as I mentioned, is the fourth in a larger set of webinars. Um, uh, and as we, uh, so we'll be coming back to this question of job quality. And as we mentioned at the start, we must continue to keep looking for opportunities for all jobs to be good jobs. Um, soon we'll be releasing a set of curated job quality tools that's also part of this work. Um, and we hope that a variety of organizations will use them to strengthen job quality um, in their own organizations and their work with their business partners and external stakeholders and, and in their communities. And we hope you'll, you will find them useful and that you will um, certainly not hesitate to, to share your feedback. Um, our next webinar is, as you can see, scheduled for April 21st when we'll be talking about worker voice as an essential element of job quality. So please keep an eye out for details on that. Um, many thanks again to Prudential for their support. And thanks so very much to all of you for joining this conversation and for your care and concern about uh, frontline workers as well as their supervisors. We hope this session was useful to you. Uh, we encourage you to be in touch with your feedback and to please fill out the, the feedback form that you see as you exit the webinar. And again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and we hope you join us again soon.